Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. And uh, you may or may not recognize this voice. So uh, I'm here with Todd. This is Mark. And uh, I'm here with Todd. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you today? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing well. And uh, we're doing a little bit something different here in that we're, we've got the same opening here for the Modern Carnivore podcast as we have for the Outdoor Feast podcast, which you host. And the reason being is that we've got two conversations going here, one that you had and one that I had that I think really relate to themselves well. And mine is with Ronell Lynn, who is a first-time hunter who went out this last fall whitetail deer hunting with his mentor, my friend Eric Jensen. And you have a conversation with who and about what? Yeah, so I'm having a conversation with my friend Krista Whiteman from New York, and Krista is sharing her story about her first archery deer. Uh, she was successful this year. Uh, it's an incredible story. She's an Artemis ambassador. Uh, she's a forager with Wild Woman Apothecary. She's got great perspective, and I can't wait to launch this conversation. It's fun. Uh, she's got a lot of cool things to share. Yeah, you know, I've been you know following Krista for quite some time on social media, and and since you you two connected you know years ago, and and you and I've talked about her and her journey into into hunting and so I'm really looking looking forward to to listening to that conversation and uh and I think people are going to like the the conversation with Rennell too uh Rennell you know he he works in the the meat department of a, a local food co-op in Minneapolis and um a great example of how Eric as as a seasoned hunter somehow just struck up a conversation with Rennell one day, like at the meat counter and said, Hey, you ever been hunting? (laughs) (laughs) He said, no. And, uh, he said, do you want to go? So next thing you know, they're, they're planning a a backwoods hunt that I would say is, you know, Eric's was one of the founding members here uh, really of the, uh, of the Minnesota chapter of backcountry hunters and anglers. And so he's very passionate about backcountry hunting and, uh, including, you know, whitetail, uh, deer hunting, you know, your typical whitetail hunter, I think is, you know, it's, it's a lot of different scenarios, but it's, it's generally, you know, you're, you don't have too far to walk. You might be driving a car to a trailhead and then walking in a bit to your stand, or maybe you're even taking a four wheeler or a quad back somewhere. And you're generally not walking too far, but, uh, Eric took Rennell into a, a deep backcountry hunt right off the bat. And <laughs> I think they hiked back in, I forget how far it was. We talk about it in the conversation, but, uh, they had to drag a, a deer out of there which was quite a distance and uh and he loved it and so i went over and helped uh, help those guys butcher the deer a little bit I, I did a little bit of work but mostly was setting up for the podcast and then uh, and then we had a had a fun conversation right in the middle of uh, of the butchering process oh i can't wait to listen to that one talk about jumping right into right getting right into a backcountry hunt 
Uh, that's that sounds fun, and uh, what a cool opportunity! <laughs> like that's great that Eric just approached him about it, and he was willing to do it. Rennell's willing to go out and and to be able to find success in a hunt like that is is remarkable. It's I can't. It's going to be a good conversation. Look forward to it. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. And now is is this Krista's first deer or first deer with archery? I forget. She's mostly, that's what she's been focusing on has mm-hmm. been archery for the last few years, right? Yeah. yeah. So this is her first deer and she is primarily an archery hunter. She identifies as an archery hunter and she's been hunting for something like maybe three years, maybe four, something like that. I think three. And so she shares her story in the, in the podcast episode. Uh, she lives in the Hudson Valley Catskill region of New York. And uh, she's also a hunter ed instructor. Uh, she just signed up and, um, you know, right. in, yeah, in-person hunter ed classes have, have um, been kind of squashed this year because of COVID. Uh, so everything's online, uh, but she's, she's just doing so much for conservation. Um, I've, I'm so excited to, to share that story about her deer. And then she just talks about engaging the landowner, her friend who let her hunt on the property. Um, it was a private land deer that she shot and just sharing meat with the landowner and sharing the experience of tracking the deer with her landowner friend, getting her engaged. And so the whole conversation's just, it's great. Uh, Krista did so many good things in that. And so I'm excited to share it. And she also talks about some of her favorite recipes, how she's been cooking it, and then, you know, we just have some conversations about all her other work too. So uh, it's uh, always fun to catch up with her. She's awesome. Oh, it's, that's great. I, I love her energy around it. So, well, why don't we jump right into it? Just a little little tip for everybody. If you're listening on the Modern Carnivore podcast, you're going to hear, hear the conversation with Rennell and Eric now. If you are on the Outdoor Feast podcast, you're going to hear Krista. Uh, and I would recommend listening to that podcast and then flip over to the other one and, uh, and, and listen to the other conversation. Uh, both really good uh, stories of new hunters. So let's jump right into it. Hey, Krista Whiteman, welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself, Todd? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. So you're a deer hunter mm-hmm. and I'm a deer hunter mm-hmm. and deer season just wrapped up. I think you said yesterday, late muzzleloader season wrapped up, right? Yep. So I'm curious to know your perspective on a scale of one to 10. We've just had a deer season and 10 being a factor like you could hunt deer for another two months straight. And one being, I'm satisfied with deer season and I couldn't hunt again, and I'm ready to move on with other things. Where are you at right now? (laughs) It depends on the day. I'm probably anywhere between nine and two. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer, right? (laughs) Um, The last, I did hunt a couple of days of late bow and muzzleloader. And it's definitely getting very, very cold out there. It's a lot of lot of work to keep toes and fingers warm and stuff like that. And so when I come home from those days, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so I'm done. Like, I'm ready for something more. And then um, every time I take another piece of venison out of the freezer and see the, the space left in it, I'm like, oh, I just wanted one more to fill my freezer. Can I just hunt some more? So... Yeah. It just depends on the day what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, that that's me too. You know, I'm I'm feeling like I put in a good effort this year, and mm-hmm. I 
I had a great season in terms of just enjoying it. I mean, I walked and walked and walked and had a good time, um, had some good memories. My dad shot a nice buck. I was with him. You know, by the time December comes, I'm usually just physically spent and ready to move on. Um, So, you know, I never really did catch up to hear your story about your buck this year. Uh, First off, I just want to say congratulations. That's so, so what was that like for you? Um, amazing. Awesome. Um, it was way more than I could have expected. And, um, I would also say it was almost like a downright spiritual experience. It felt like a baptism slash religious rite of some sort. Everything came together so much like more easily, uh, more cleanly than I could have ever expected or imagined. So uh, really super positive experience, not not just for tagging an animal, but for just what all that meant for me. And um, yeah, it was a beautiful experience. That is so incredible. I'm so excited for you. I was so excited to see when you shared that on, on your Instagram. And so how many years have you been hunting now? I would say this is my third, I just wrapped up my third full season of hunting. So the first season I really only hunted bow. And then last year I hunted both the bow and the rifle season. And um, yeah, this was the coming into my, my third season. And uh, I, I really didn't expect a whole lot. I had kind of like prepared myself for the like, I'm in learning mode and I'm just, I'm just going to enjoy being out there and I'm just going to focus on that. And then, then it all kind of like came together actually very early on. I harvested him on the the first day of of bow season in New York here in the, in the Southern zone on October 1st. And it wasn't even nine o'clock in the morning yet. So there was definitely some jokes about like, well, what are you going to do for the rest of the season? And uh, I definitely got to um, explore some more stuff and and try some stuff and kind of, you know, go out on a limb a little bit more because it was like, okay, at least, you know, I I have an animal in the freezer. So I'm going to try different areas. I'm going to try maybe some different techniques and and even took some time to, to try, you know, learning some stuff about pursuing other game. And um, just felt really grateful to to be able to to branch out in my experience this year um, because that all came together so early. Yeah, that is incredible. Congratulations, and Thanks. it's great. Yeah, it's when it happens that early. Wow, that's incredible. And and also, you know, I found the same thing. It's interesting, like what you're saying about okay, that happened on the first day of archery. And then, okay, you, you just kind of relaxed a little bit and tried some new things. Um, I found that too, like your mindset definitely changes in seasons like that. When things come together early or whenever they come together, it just changes your your mindset a lot. It's just like there's a comfort level. It seems like there's like a relaxation level almost to some extent mm-hmm. in terms of your hunting expectations and whatever, you know, you might put upon yourself, but yeah, how cool is that? So what were you saddle hunting then? Was that ground that you had hunted before? Was that just like brand new ground that you scouted this year or how did that all 
manifest out? Yeah. So it was, um, it's a small little piece of private land. It's actually the first private land that I've ever had the opportunity to hunt. And um, it's just a friend of mine's property and she, it's kind of a, a long skinny piece. And she really has like her house on the, on one end of it. And the other end of it happens to, to back into a cow pasture with a fence. And when I, when she told me I could hunt that property this summer, I was sort of like, eh, okay, there's probably not a whole lot of opportunity. It's really small. I wasn't, you know, I was like, okay, I'll probably hunt here bow, but I don't feel really comfortable with how small the property is and with some of the houses being around. Like, I don't feel comfortable hunting this area for rifle. So I, I really actually didn't think too much of it to to begin with. But I went a couple times in, in August and I think even like early September and scouted it a little bit, put up a trail camera. And I actually... You know, I hadn't been, hadn't had that much experience with this land, hadn't seen what was moving on it. And when I first got on it, I was like, kind of had no clue how I was going to break this down and, and figure it out. And when I started walking it, I was at first sort of like, I, I'm not seeing what I thought I would, would see. And I remember just like, okay, I'll, I'll go to the fence and well, first of all, I didn't I didn't realize that there was a, an actual physical fence when I first looked at it on um, Onyx. I just saw the property border. When I went actually in there, I realized that there was a physical fence between the the cow pasture and the um, and her property from the from Onyx. It just looks like a big open field. Uh, so when I got there, I saw it was a cow pasture, and there's a, a fence there. And the the woods go right up to the fence. In fact, actually, the fence has um, there's some trees that are like have the fence growing through them. And I started walking along the fence, just looking for areas where there was enough of an opening in the in the tree branches for deer to be able to hop back and forth over the fence. Because it some of the a lot of places like the branches and the foliage was low enough that they obviously weren't going to go over the the fence that way. And so I just started kind of looking for openings and, and along the way I, I saw kind of a faint trail that was going through, through that, that run ran more or less kind of parallel to the fence and just started, you know, trying to look for some bedding areas and some sign in there and put a trail camera up late summer in one of the kind of like better openings, clearings for them to be maybe passing over the fence and saw actually saw a lot of cool stuff on the camera, like a, a big old bear that was moving through there, a fisher. Um, but there was at least two different bucks that I saw on that, on my trail camera. One, one was smaller. It was like a fork, a forky. And then I, there was another, at least six point, maybe eight point, um, that was on the camera that would often show up with a little forky. And I, I actually one day went in, a, in there to check the trail camera. While I was busy looking at the camera, I heard something in the, on the other side of the fence in the field. And I look over and I see these two bucks like running through the field. He got their picture on the trail camera. Like, there you guys are. <laughs> and, um, and then later I, 
I think at some point I did get a picture of, I'm pretty sure it was my, my buck um, on the trail camera when he was still kind of in velvet or, or just had come out of velvet, like a couple weeks before the, the season opened. Um, so I, I had some idea that they were moving around there. And these were daytime pictures, by the way, of the, the, the bucks that were in there. So uh, I didn't quite know where else to, to start for the season. So I figured I'll just start opening day at this little spot and just see what happens. So uh, I was very, very surprised <laughs> um, that this all like kind of happened, but I happened to be, so I was kind of running a hybrid setup. I had put my hang on stand up uh, the platform with a seat and, but was using my actual saddle harness as my, my safety thing instead of my normal harness with the dorsal on the back. Yep. And that was kind of cool because I was able to switch between both. So I had a bigger platform uh, to kind of support my feet and I could hang in the saddle from. And then when my legs got tired or I wanted to change positions, I could actually kind of turn and kind of sit myself onto the, the seat of my, um, my hang-on stand. And also, because I wasn't quite sure, there was two trails. One would be like basically behind me when I was sitting, one would be kind of to the front of me. And I wasn't sure which way to set my stand up because I, I hadn't, I had only gotten... I only had one trail camera set up, so it was on the, the trail that would have been like kind of behind me. So I didn't know what kind of traffic was happening on the one that would have been in front of me. So I was trying to kind of play both, you know, potentialities there. And I had been sitting, uh, sitting on the stand most of the morning. And then I had just decided to have like a little bit of something to drink. And so I was like hanging in it, like from the saddle. And I had just went to slide my, my water bottle back into my pack. And that's when I happened to see the antlers starting to move through. And he had come around the corner of the field and was starting to move parallel to the fence between, between me and the fence. And luckily, because I was in that saddle setup, my bow, he was moving from my right side to my left side. I had my, my bow hanging on the left side of the tree since I picked my bow up with my left hand and I draw it with my right. So I was mm -hmm. able to slide my hand in, grab up the bow, clip on my release, draw it basically while the tree was in my way. I, didn't, I lost visual of him for a few seconds when he moved from the right side of the tree to the left side of the tree. And so I had already had it drawn back and he stepped, kept going to my left side on the other side of the tree. And there was like a little, little shooting lane. And when he stepped into it, you know, I released the arrow. In fact, actually it was, it was the weirdest sensation because it was almost like somebody else took over my body for those few seconds. <laughs> and I don't actually remember like, I don't remember aiming the pin. I don't remember actually releasing it. It was like I drew the bow and then the next thing I know, I'm hearing the arrow hit the side of him. And I remember very clearly seeing that it hit him in the ribs. It hit maybe just a smidge back 
from where I would have liked. And I was like, ooh, I might have gotten a little bit of the liver on that one. But I knew he was slightly he was slightly on the diagonal and like kind of in a quartering two. So mm-hmm. I knew the the exit wound would have been would have been fine. And he was probably I think he was like twelve yards from where I was in the tree when I Close, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, I didn't have time to range it while this was all happening. It's just like, oh, wow, he's passing this this close. I had ranged all the trees around me before, and I knew that the fence was less than 20 yards from me. So I knew anything between me and the fence I was going to shoot at. But he ended up coming in between, and he was about 12 yards. And at first, like he ran a few steps, maybe about 10 yards, and then he just slowed down to a walk, kind of like went into a clearing And then hooked around and went into this stand of of white pines. And that's where I kind of like lost my visual of him. And I remember watching him really closely because I was like, okay, I want to know exactly where he's he's going, you know, to start my track. And uh, the way he walked off, you know, there was a point where he got to this little clearing when he kind of like turned around and looked back at where he had been standing when I hit him. And if he had had like a thought bubble above his head, it would be like, huh, what was that? That was really weird. (laughs) And I swear I could have seen that look on his face. And it made me start to question, like, did I miss him? Did, Did I only think that that happened? And I had to like replay it in my head. And I was like, no, I, I very distinctly heard that like thud slash thwack sound Mm -hmm. of the arrow like hitting the body cavity i'm like i know i hit him and i didn't see my arrow at first and for some reason i had it in my head that the you know he'd run off with the arrow sticking out of him and so Mm -hmm. i didn't see that and i was like starting to be like maybe maybe i missed and then i got my binoculars out and started looking on the ground and Shortly after that, the sun came out in, in just the right way where I saw the arrow laying on the ground. And I got my binoculars out and I started looking at the arrow and I could see that it was blood from from the tip to the veins. There was It was all red. So I was like, I definitely, definitely had a pass through on him. Um, but I couldn't tell the quality of the blood from up in the tree. So mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was frothy or livery or... God forbid, gutty. Uh, so that all happened like right before nine o'clock, and it took me probably till nine thirty to stop shaking. So I actually sat up in the yeah, tree until ten o'clock. <laughs> I don't blame you. I can imagine. I mean, holy smokes, I, I'd be the same way. Yeah. Well, it's it's weird because I have I don't have any problems while I'm drawing the bow, holding the bow aiming the bow but Mm -hmm. once I let down you know two two minutes later I am just like shaking like a leaf um so I'd rather have it happen after I let the bow down than while I'm trying to like hold on the on the animal but (laughs) definitely yeah definitely (laughs) and I then I just started like texting, you know, some of my my friends like, you know, holy crap, I I think this just happened. I think I just shot a buck. (laughs) And I think I was having like four or five text conversations with 
different people simultaneously. <laughs> so I'm shaking and trying to like text people. And um, some of my hunter friends were like, well, what happened? What happened? And yeah, everybody know, wants to know, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm like, I don't know. I'm still in this tree. Um, so because I, I was pretty sure I tagged the liver on the one side, um, I decided to give it a little bit more time before I uh, got out of the tree and also just from the shaking perspective. So I I hung out with the tree for about an hour and I got down out of it about 10 o'clock and went right over to my arrow and I looked at it and it, it definitely wasn't gut blood, but it wasn't frothy like air, mm-hmm. like lung blood either. So, but it wasn't as, as dark as I would have thought thought for liver so um i think it was fairly possibly arterial i think you know i might have gotten a little bit from the angle like just a smidge of the um aorta the abdominal aorta so uh i marked that and i marked the next spot of blood and then i went ahead and backed out just in case he was going to take a little bit longer i was planning on giving him like four hours maybe before I started the track. And so I backed out, went to my truck, you know, got something to eat. And then, uh, my, my buddy, Bill Swiak had said, you know, if you get something, you know, give me a holler, I'll come help you with the the gut and the drag. And I had, he was one of the people I had texted and he's like, I'll be right over. Cause he lives pretty much in the same town. So I hung out at my truck, waited for, for Bill to come over. And then he, he stopped by and we went in and he looked at the arrow and he was just like, yeah, he's dead. So oh. <laughs> I was like 10, 30, 10, 45 or something like that, maybe 11. So we just followed, you know, I saw, we saw like two spots of blood that I had marked and then the blood trail actually was like gone after that. It and was it, really? Wow. Yeah. We couldn't find any more blood after the first two spots that I had marked. And it was a good thing that I had paid really, really close attention to exactly the track that he had walked until I lost visual on him because that was, you know, we just followed that line and walked just a little bit into that stand of white pines. And really once we made the turn, Bill was like, Oh, there he is. Like he didn't even go 50 yards before he piled up. So, okay. So he didn't go far at all and he was just right there and yeah. Wow. Wow. He was pretty much like just out of my visual in the white pines. So what was that like then just seeing him and walking up to him? Um, well, it was the first day of October and it was actually already starting to get close to 70 degrees. So he was kind of starting to get a little bit bloaty in the belly and it was one of these things where it was, um, wow, just a, a mix of emotions, I think, you know, like very, uh, holy shit, that just happened. I can't believe it. And very, very grateful, very excited, uh, definitely a bit, a bit sad, a bit humbling. But there also wasn't a whole lot of time to deal with that or process that because it was just mm-hmm. sort of like we need to get the guts out of this real quick before things yep. get too hot and we lose meat so there wasn't a whole lot of there was time for a couple of quick picks and 
you know, I was like, I, I have my little kind of thing that I like to do to offer gratitude and a, you know, a little ritual that's important for me to, to thank the animals for their sacrifice. And I had about enough time to do that. And then it was, um, time to get into, into the messy part. The, the other thing that was fascinating about that is my friend, the landowner, when I came, uh, when I uh, came back to my truck to meet Bill, she came out of her house and she was like, oh, she was super excited about it. And she wanted to come to come see it. And so she came into the woods with us to track it and to, to find his, his body. Wow. That's cool. It's and it's cool because she's let other people, she's not a hunter herself, but she's let other people hunt on her land before. And one of the, one of the things that she worries about, she's a, she's a very caring kind of tender hearted individual, I would say. And she, she wants these animals taken care of, but she also has an issue that they eat. All. She has a beautifully landscaped uh, area around her house, and she's always at a constant kind of battle with them eating all of her plants and, and her landscaping. I think it's one of the reasons why she allows hunting. It's like, would somebody please take care of these things? Um, but she told me that you know she's always a, she's she's worried about them suffering. Like she understands you know the natural cycle of things and they can't live forever and they need to be kind of like, you know, kept in balance, but she doesn't want them to suffer in, in their death. And so for her to see how quickly and cleanly he was killed, um, you know, that he didn't go far, that he didn't suffer in, in a agony, um, at that point in time, I, it just, I think it really, from conversations that she and I had, like, she was really grateful to know that, like, he was taken care of in that, that he he didn't suffer, um, that he died quickly. And I think that really helped her have a better image of hunting and hunters. Because her neighbor on the other side of the land actually runs kind of a hunting lease kind of thing on, on his acreage. And so he has random hunters coming kind of on and off that property on a regular basis. And she's had issues with some of those people like trespassing on her land. And, you know, she's just not always had the best experiences with, with hunters and with hunting. And so, you know, to have her there and to be part of it, I, I feel like was kind of a win that she now has a better understanding of it, a better experience of it, a better view of hunting. So that was really cool to have her there. Yeah, it is really cool to have her there. And I think you had told me that you also, you had shared some meat with her too. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I gave her um, some of the backstrap and at least from some of my early hunting mentors, that is just what you do to show gratitude um, to the people that help you in making this happen. And that, you know, I think of Robin Wall Kilmer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and she talks about something called the honorable harvest. And one of the tenets of the, of the honorable harvest is, you know, share what the, share what you share your harvest, just as the earth has shared with you. And so it was really important for me to, to share some of this 
the meat with her. And she, I, so I gave her some of the backstrap and gave her a great recipe for it from uh, Buck Buck Moose by Hank Shaw. And she was like, I've had people hunt here before and nobody has ever shared any of the meat with me. And she was super tickled to, um, to have some of that venison. She said it was really good. And it made me a little bit sad that, you know, she's told me about other people who've hunted her property and who have harvested animals on her property. And they just like drag them out of there like, hey, thanks. And that's all that ever happens to it. So, you know, to be able to share the meat with her, to be able to have her there during like the tracking process, you know, just really kind of brought her into the whole experience without her having to be a hunter herself. So that was uh, really cool. That is really cool. I, I love all of that. You did so many things right. I mean, we've just been talking for several minutes and through this whole process, making all the right moves from starting, I, I'm just listening to you. You set up cameras and you saw deer that were moving in the daytime. You had instincts to be able to set up. You had mobility. You had flexibility. After the shot, you waited long enough to calm down and get a hold of yourself, so to speak. You know, you had a friend come to help you find the deer and like sharing this, getting the landowner as a partner, having agency in this situation as a partner, you know, mm -hmm. like being a participant in it mm -hmm. um, and then actually sharing the meat. I, I think all of that is amazing. I mean, that is, that is such a cool experience. Congratulations. It's, I'm Thank so you. happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and, and what have you been up to with cooking the meat then? You mentioned buck, buck, moose. Have you, have you found any uh, favorite recipes so far that you've really enjoyed? Yep. Um, well, I, I saw something on Instagram about somebody was doing a uh, Julia, Julia style uh, cook through of buck, buck, moose. And I, I kind of feel similarly, <laughs> you know, like buck, buck, moose is now my version of the art of cooking. Um, yep. Hank Shaw is my Julia child. Um, and uh, in fact, actually I made one of the, my, the best hands down recipe I've made so far is the uh, venison with Cumberland sauce that I did with just a, a good light sear of the backstrap. And then you make this uh, sauce that is actually a really old traditional sauce. Like Hank says that the recipe goes back to like I, some sometime in like the 18th century, 1700 or something, right? Like that, back to to Brit to Britain and the area of Britain known as Cumberland. And way um, back then, yeah, wow, yeah. that's cool. And it's just it's like shallot with um, uh, some like demi glace. And then there's port wine in there. There's a bit of red currant jelly. There's a, a, a splash of like, I think, orange juice in there and then a couple of spices. But so it makes this kind of sweet and a little bit of not spicy hot, but like there's a, a bit of ground mustard in there that kind of gives it um, a bit of a just just enough of a pungent to uh, balance out the sweet from the currant. And then you have the wine in there. And I mean, this was the, this sauce was so good with the venison. It like melds with the venison flavors. It's like you eat through the venison and then you lick the plate. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's very like refined kind of like aristocratic sauce. And then you like <laughs> pick up the plate and give it a totally slovenly. Um, but it was that stinking good. And that was the recipe that I gave uh, my friend Becca, the landowner. And I was like, you have to try this. And um, everybody I know who's tried it is like, this is amazing. And I, I didn't, when I first read the recipe, I was like, Ooh, eh, I don't know about that. And then, uh, um, I decided to, you know, give it a whirl on a whim. And I was like, man, I would not have thought that that would be the winner recipe from this, um, from this cookbook, but it is, um, I made the, uh, I used the Jaeger schnitzel recipe to make the heart which I think is a really, you know, with, with most schnitzels, you have to pound the meat really, really thin. And you also mm-hmm. end up tenderizing it a lot. And I've, I've cooked with beef heart before and I, I like heart, but one of the problems with heart is like, if you overcook it, just the slightest, it gets super tough and chewy. And Very chewy. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so I think the nice thing about schnitzel is because you're, pounding the shit out of it before you make the schnitzel like that can't happen you can't overcook it because it's super thin and even if you do you've already like tenderized the cramp out of it before you cooked it so it's good um, to be good right yeah 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 totally so yeah i like it now it's like sort of a, a little bit of a weekly ritual to pick out a recipe and pick out a cut and, and just do something kind of special, um, with the venison. And it's, it's a little, for me, it's like a little bit of a, of an homage, you know, each time I I always feel like I have to pick something really like good and special. And it's my way of just kind of continuing to, to thank this buck for the meat that he's provided by just using it in making something really, really delicious, really, really tasty, kind of foodie. But yeah. So I also ran out after, after the Cumberland sauce recipe, I was like, Hank Shaw is a genius. Let me get all of his other books. (laughs) So yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, there's a reason people love Hank Shaw. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. There's a reason he is so creative. I have, I I still have his Hunt Gather Cookbook, which mm-hmm. I don't know if that was his first book, but it was an earlier book. And that's still I still go back to that all the time. And that one was so versatile. There's just all sorts of different stuff in there. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, you know Dan Den from uh Den Handmade Knives, Carlos uh, Husband. Yeah. Yeah. I met him he, in person at the um New York BHA rendezvous last year. So he you know Pheasant Quail Cottontail book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that Hank Shot wrote. So I think I think Dan came up with that name. Hank put out a call like, "Hey, what uh-huh. am I going to name this next book?" And Dan sent that in, and I think he's actually referenced in the in the intro to that book. <laughs> How cool is that? that? Is Dan awesome. is like, is he Renaissance and- or what? Like he's a book namer and a knife maker and everything else. He's just he does it all. He does it well, all. It's so funny too. I have that book like literally sitting right next to me because I I came home from work tonight and nearly tripped over two pheasants that were left on my porch by a friend of mine. He just like had too many and just drives by and leaves these two like pheasant roosters on my porch. It's dark. I nearly tripped over them and broke my neck. But 
when I saw that they were pheasants, I was like, this is either some weird ass voodoo stuff that somebody's trying to put a hex on me or my buddy Bill had too many pheasants and left them for me. <laughs> I was going to ask you if it was Bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally sounds, Bill. Sounds like Bill. <laughs> well, and he, he didn't text me or call me about it until later so like i i was so confused because there was no message on my phone there was not a tag because there wasn't any like hey i left these for you it was just me tripping over them and so i had to call and be like um did you leave these pheasants here he's like oh yeah 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 and i talked to him for a little bit and i got the um text message from him about it like after i got off the phone with him so the the timing of that was really funny but um, yeah, so I, I immediately went to my bookshelf there, picked off a pheasant quail cottontail and was like, hmm, which Hankshaw recipe are we going to make with these pheasants? So <laughs> I love that. Oh, I know so it's not like such levels. a fangirl, but <laughs> I know it's all good. It's all good. There's a reason for it. Uh, you Hank, know, so if speaking- you're listening, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> There you go, Hank. You heard it here. Uh, he is he is awesome. You know, speaking of pheasants, so you know, all of a sudden, it's like I never hunted pheasants up here. You know, I live mm-hmm. up in the Adirondacks and yep. the Southern Adirondacks. I'm a couple hours north of where you are, and I just never grew up in like an agricultural area where there's where there's many pheasants. But come to find out, I just hadn't been looking really hard because my mm-hmm. brother-in-law lives down in Washington County now. Um, and there's some state lands and some conservation lands down there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I was talking to him. I'm like, you know, trying to get the intel from him because he's a mm-hmm. deer hunter. I'm like, Jay, forget the deer. Like, are there any pheasants there? He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, pheasants. He's like, yeah, yeah. I see them all the time. I'm like, good enough. That's what we're up to. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, so we're definitely going to do some pheasant hunting. I've been working on nice. it and uh, going to try that and it should be really fun. So looking forward to that. Yeah, once um, once I filled my tag, you know, on October first, it's like great. I have the rest of October to go like hit pheasants, and so every probably like once a week, my friend Jane and I would go down to this spot where they they one of the sp- places where they stock pheasant here in Ulster County. I think the only place they actually stock them here. And we went like probably every week trying to chase the pheasant. I don't have a dog. Not, at least mm-hmm. I have a dog. She's not a bird dog, but we don't have a dog. Yep. So we were just like hiking after them and never, never put any pheasants up in the air to take a shot at. The only pheasant that I saw was sitting on the road <laughs> across the <laughs> parking area. <laughs> it's like I drove in one day and there's just this rooster <laughs> sitting in the little road, like kind of looking at me. And I was like, damn it, I bet that's going to be the only damn rooster that I see today. And sure enough, yeah. and he, he ran like into the forested side, like away from like the field. And I was like regretting yeah. the rest of the day that I didn't just like hop out of the truck, grab my shotgun <laughs> and chase him into the woods right there. <laughs> so my brother-in-law said the same thing and where he is in Washington County. That's uh-huh. what he said. He's like, he sees them by the road or in the yard next door, but they're there. So that's funny. Yeah. That's cool. Well, yeah. Don't people so, call them ditch chickens? I mean, like. Ditch chickens, they right. Yeah. I've, I think- I've heard ditch chickens, ditch parrot, all mm-hmm. sorts of names for them. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, oh my gosh. It's, it's crazy. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on that, I definitely want to do some pheasant hunting next year. Yeah, and uh, I'll be grouse hunting more 
after the holidays here, depending on the yep. snow, though, I mean, I, I get into ice fishing here. It's late mm-hmm. December. And so when we get first ice, I'll be out fishing for a bit. But, you yep. know, grouse season extends through February 28th, I think, um, yep. and snowshoe hare. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's definitely some winter hunting opportunities for, yeah. for birds and hares. So look forward to getting out. Yeah, it's kind of like an embarrassment of riches right now. Like this weekend, I'm supposed to field hunt for geese, but I I was going to go ice fish with another friend, but now we're supposed to get all this like warm rain. So we might have to put that, you know, for the next weekend. And then there's mm-hmm. still like grouse and, and squirrel. And I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm still, even though deer season's over, I'm kind of like, gee, which can I, what, what am I going to hunt today? Am I going to take my shotgun for a walk? Am I going to go lay in a field? Am I going to put my boots on and haul across the ice? Like, yeah, definitely. my oyster. <laughs> it definitely is. It definitely is. Whatever. Get out there and do whatever you feel like doing exactly. that day, right? It's yeah, the beautiful thing yeah. about COVID. It's like, what am I going to do today outside? Like, that is the safe thing that I can do. And nobody's expecting me to show up and be somewhere else inside right now. So, uh, you know, the the hunting introvert of me is actually kind of loving COVID for that. It's like, get outside all the time. It's the safe thing to do. Yeah, it's really interesting. There was a, I don't know if you saw it, but um, I don't read Wall Street Journal, but there was an article in Wall Street Journal that I saw referenced online last week. And it it was talking about hunting and the increase in hunting through the pandemic. And it basically what it said was, I'm paraphrasing, but it basically said that if there's an activity that was designed for a big pandemic, it's hunting, right? It gets people outdoors. It gets people connected to their food. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's a situation where people are more focused on it and everything. So Mm -hmm. it's really, it's an interesting article. You'd expect to read something like that and maybe outdoor life. Mm-hmm. Um, and not Wall Street Journal, but it's kind of cool to see that kind of narrative in in mm-hmm. a mainstream newspaper like that. You know, it's totally. de- people are definitely picking up, noticing. Um, well, I feel like so, hunting and fishing has social distance built into it too, because it's like you know, you firearm safety, or if you got a six foot fly rod in your hand—sorry, not six foot, an eight foot, nine foot fly rod in your hand—like there's a natural social distance that goes along with that. Like you're just not getting super super close to a lot of people. So, you know, it's, it's definitely been quite the savior, I think, for a lot of folks in this. Definitely. Yeah, I think so too. And, uh, I did one mentoring hunt this year. I didn't do as much mentoring as I had anticipated. I volunteer for Field Fork with Mm -hmm. QDMA. Mm -hmm. And so they were good with mentors. Uh, Yeah. NDA. Exactly. (laughs) I know. I'm still stuck on QDMA. Like I I still, right. I still think that way, but yeah, National Deer Association, right? Well, when I hear NDA, and... I'm like, non-disclosure agreement? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's going to take a while to get my what head around that one. Yeah, so I'm volunteering for the Field to yep. Fork Confidentiality Agreement Association. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so they, you know, they had enough mentors for mm-hmm. a while. And then, so what was happening, though, is the person that I hunted with last year I just reached back out. Would you be interested in coming back out? We have an opportunity. Uh, Matt Ross had reached out and uh, his brother-in-law has a farm in Southern Zone. And so I'm so glad that the opportunity came together and that just by reaching out, 
I don't think he would have went if I hadn't mm-hmm. have just reached out and said, Hey, I'm still open. You know, you can still mm-hmm. come with me anytime. Mm-hmm. And so that prompted it. It was great. We didn't see any deer uh, the day we mm-hmm. hunted, but I think it was so successful on several levels. You know, I think uh, it was a learning experience. We talked a lot uh, about hunting and answered some questions and just the, you know, companionship. Uh, mm-hmm. We're friends, you know, it's like, yeah. yes, we're in a role where I'm trying to help him um, with questions that he has as he goes on his path. But I like being with him in the woods. It's mm-hmm. fun. And so it was great. It was a cool experience. Yeah, no deer for that, but it was one of the highlights of my year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always enjoy hunting with him whenever he nice. can. And I th- and I think that that's like a good thing to think about in terms of mentor programs too. It's like okay, mm-hmm. you know, we're taking people that have maybe never hunted or it's their first year hunting, but just circling back around because it is a it's a continuum and a process. And mm-hmm. you know, so being there for support for people that are in their second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever eighth year, mm-hmm. and just always opening extending the olive branch, you know, and the invitation, I think, uh, helps a lot. So, yeah. Well, especially for, for a new, new hunter, I think not, not everybody is, is super motivated in the way that they're going to really like keep with it when, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, you keep having failures. You know, we generally tend to look at success in hunting as like, you know, coming out heavy right Mm -hmm. and for a new hunter you know I've had a couple of conversations with people over the last like year or two where I think if you don't hunt and you just maybe live in like a you know an an area like this it's like semi-rural slash suburban you're used to seeing deer all the time you're trying to avoid hitting them with your car you see them in fields all the time you see them maybe even in your backyard all the time And I think that and also like social media and hunting leads people to think that, you know, it's, it's a fairly easy, straightforward thing. You know, you're going to go, you're going to sit in the woods, you're going to wait for this animal to walk out in front of you, you're going to shoot it, you're going to drag it home and eat it. And it's so far from that. (laughs) And I think (laughs) if, if you're a new hunter, you know, you maybe overestimate like, you know, how likely it is that you're going to see deer and, because of your experience seeing them like in your neighborhood or, you know, trying not to hit them with your car and it can get, I can see where for a lot of folks who aren't ready for that, it can get kind of really discouraging and maybe overwhelming. And and I know at first I would always be like, well, what am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong because I'm not seeing deer. Like all these other people say they're seeing, seeing deer and I'm, I'm not, I'm having, I felt like I was having a harder time filling a tag than anybody else, it seemed. And so I always just assumed, you know, I was, I was doing things wrong. And so I was obsessed with like, well, what do I need to do? How do I need to figure this out? How do I do this right? And I don't know if, if everybody is going to be quite that obsessed with figuring it out when they first get started. And so having, having someone that really can just like reach out and just be like, no, no, like, it's fine. This is, this is hunting more days than not. It's you walking home empty handed or it's, you know, not even seeing anything. And a lot of times, you know, at at the very beginning, if you just like see a deer in the woods, it can be, that can be the peak experience. Like "Ah, I actually saw a white tail in the woods for a change, you know, having, I think normalizing that experience for new hunters can help them 
stay hunters, you know, like, oh, okay, it's not just because I'm new and I suck at this, but like, this is, this is hunting and I have to like, you know, reassign my, my expectations, um, and, re- and adjust my expectations to how this like actually goes and yeah. start enjoying the experience. Yeah. I think that's actually yeah. when things get better. <laughs> it really is. And I think just that reality of just maybe a validation, like it's like what you just said was really important. Just saying, Hey, it's okay. That's hunting. That's how it goes. And just having somebody hear that from somebody else, uh, Mm -hmm. I think is really important. You know, I didn't feel attacked this year. You didn't? No, I I did not. My father did. Uh, It was a great experience. I was with him. I saw, I think three bucks uh, still Mm -hmm. hunting on the ground. And I just, for various reasons, each of those situations, they didn't quite come together Mm -hmm. and they were close. I saw a pile of deer in general Mm -hmm. and I felt like I was on deer all the time, but Mm -hmm. for just hunting is hunting. And so like some years, I mean, I've had some really productive years and, you know, this year wasn't one of them, but I, I think I felt more relaxed and happy this year about hunting like after being stuck inside with COVID all spring and just you know the bigger picture of where life is right now just being able to get out in the woods and put miles on up here I I feel good about it you know I don't Mm -hmm. like it's it's one of those things where you know I don't really feel like geez I missed the boat or I did something wrong I just think that that's hunting and like what you said was really important just having people tell those stories too and just say, mm-hmm. hey, it's okay. It's going to happen from time to time. And so just shake it off and, you know, go on to the next thing and um, just try to keep it in perspective. Yeah. Sometimes that's, it's hard to do, but, um, totally. but I think I've, I felt like more mentally open and emotionally mm-hmm. pretty good this year than I have in years past. So yeah. it is what it is, you know, yeah. and it's all good. Um, I think uh, queers and camo that, um, that Instagram account had a really mm-hmm. great post. I want to say maybe like two weeks ago about redefining what success is in hunting and, and the kind of unspoken kind of rule has always been that success is like tagging out is, is having an animal is, you know, getting your bag limit or, you know, having even having a freezer so full, you can't fit anything else in it. And um, they just made like a really great point that, we can lose a lot of what is really meaningful um, and fulfilling about hunting when we keep such a narrow idea of what success is and that success can be learning a new track, uh, connecting with new pieces of land, maybe learning something about a, a new species. Like you can always, or even just feeling more confident in the woods, feeling more confident with your equipment, feeling um, more confident with your navigation ex- uh, abilities. You know, there's all kinds of successes to be had in the journey that is hunting. And for me personally, I'm I'm a terribly goal oriented person. I always want to get to like you know the finish line, the achievement thing. And mm-hmm. I'm always being told and given feedback of like you know enjoy the process. Like you'll you'll not drive yourself crazy so much. And one of the things that I, you know, made me choose hunting is that I knew I needed to do this and I knew hunting would really like make, like make me really have to deal with that edge. And every time I go out into the woods, it's almost like nature, the earth is always teaching me like the goal is not 
the goal. <laughs> Be yeah. here now. Like the process is the goal. The tag is not the goal. The and it's it's so interesting because when I walked into the woods the morning um, that I shot my buck, I actually had this very different kind of piece where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy as much as I can about the season. I'm going to focus on learning as much as I can from every experience that I have. And I'm not going to obsess about filling a tag or having an animal or, you know, doing it right or not doing it right. I'm just going to enjoy all of it. And I remember like very clearly having that thought as I was preparing for that day. And it, you know, in, in a way, it's almost like the universe was like, all right, you're on the right track. Let me give you this little, let me give you this little crumb, this little reward for finally figuring that piece out. And here's, here's your first tag. And then, um, you know, that's, that's the path that I need to, to be on, not focusing on like, ah, I have to fill these tags, but, um, focusing on that experience and just really being a part of it. I love that. I've, I've, tried to do that too i've tried to focus on being in the present and and Mm -hmm. redefining success i'm telling you what i have now been hunting for for deer hunting anyway for probably 30 years Mm -hmm. and it took me way longer to get to that point so you know uh emotionally and and have a perspective about it than than a lot of people you know i Mm -hmm. i was you know it was probably only 10 or 15 years ago that i started really relaxing more and just like changing my perspective about about hunting and not feeling not putting the expectation on like Mm -hmm. i I can remember like you go through stages in hunting where you know when when i was really um let's say back i'm thinking back into like my late 20s early 30s um it was really i was putting a lot of expectations on myself about what what i would consider a good year or not a good year Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the season, I'd be worn out. I mean, those kinds of expectations, I don't, you know, that's a whole conversation in itself is where do those expectations come from? Where do you pick those up? Is it, is it a sponge because you're picking it up from, you know, what you think people think you should be doing, or is it just mm-hmm. like, you know, self um, awareness because like you say, you're a goal oriented person and, mm-hmm. and that's really helps you be successful in so many things in life. But then like you're trying to, keep that in a healthy mindset in in a hunting, you know, in a hunting journey. But yeah, it's, it's okay to go through all of that stuff, you know, because that's just natural. And I think it's part of the process and for you to be able to like focus on that, you know, I think it's, there's a maturity to that, I guess is what I'm saying to just be able to think through that mm-hmm. and, and try to be aware of it, a, a mindfulness that, that I appreciate. It just took me forever to get to that point. Well, it might also be the fact that I'm, I'm, I've taken this up as a, a late stage hunter, you know, I'm, I turned 40 this year. And, you know, I think it's also, I don't know if I would have been able to approach it from this perspective or with this, you know, maturity 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. (laughs) You know, I think my 20 year old self didn't, you know, didn't learn enough, didn't know enough, would have been still way too, um, way too concerned about achieving and what other people thought of me and, and what, um, what they would think of me based on whether I did or didn't achieve a certain goal. So 
I think some of that is also just the the natural stages we go through as as humans, and mm-hmm. you could you could probably go through those same kind of steps with you know insert any process that is not a straight line to learn you know that is yeah. has its ups and downs and and um, data points and variables that are out of your control. Like I think that's probably the thing that's the trickiest about hunting is there's so much that is out of your control, no matter how much you try and prepare for it, like how much you try and scout, how many, you know, cameras you have out there, you're just never going to be able to control. You're just never going to make a deer appear on cue. You know, there's always a challenge to it. There's, there's always a challenge to it. That's well said. And I think that people hearing those kinds of stories, I hope that helps new hunters. I think it will. You want Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about, well, there's a lot of things you could talk about, but um, yes. <laughs> you're, you're an Artemis ambassador now, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You're a hunter ed instructor, uh-huh. and you're you're also you've got wild. Is it Wild Woman Apothecary? Is that? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Okay, cool. So, anything new with any of that stuff that you want to touch on? Oh man, well, <laughs> it's so interesting because a lot of that stuff was all very like you know, big plans for, for 2020 that all got really just decimated by COVID. So, um, yeah, at the end of last year, um, I got accepted as a Artemis sportswoman ambassador. And the, the idea was to actually kind of put together some, um, learning opportunities and maybe some, some events to, uh, help get women together out in the field. And with the, inability to meet and gather in groups that really kind of put, uh, the kibosh on a lot of, on a lot of stuff for that. So, um, I'm actually working on putting together, we've been doing some regional groups, uh, for Artemis. So, uh, some of the other gals have started like, uh, Artemis Great Lakes, there's an Artemis Southeast. And so I'm putting together the, um, like Facebook socials for uh, an Artemis Northeast group that will be a place where women in the Northeast, you know, who are interested in hunting and fishing can kind of uh, network with each other online. So hopefully when this is all behind us and COVID is in our rear view, we can start um, having some events and getting together and, and, um, and doing some things to, to get more women out in the field. With Hunter Ed, that's a whole interesting uh, piece because New York moved to having all of their Hunter Ed online this year. And it's fostered a lot of opportunity for people to uh, to get their Hunter Ed. And I think between what you were saying before about the pandemic and, and hunting being sort of like the perfect thing, the perfect answer to uh, the, the main problems the the pandemic has presented to us the last i saw the numbers something like 20,000 people took hunter ed in new york state in 2019 and as of august 1st 39,000 people had taken the online hunter safety in new york so we weren't even yeah. finished you know we hadn't even got to like the september october where people are like last minute like hey i'm going to get a rifle and go out in the woods and we already had pretty much like double the number of people in New York state, um, go through Hunter Ed. But for me, that means that, um, I still have to do a lot of, I I still have to do some apprenticing to other Hunter Ed instructors before I can be teaching them myself. And since the in-person classes really haven't been happening, 
I haven't got a, a chance to do that. So that is kind of in a, a state of suspended animation uh, at, for the moment. And then with the pandemic, uh, I had to close my, my chiropractic practice for a time in the spring. And so I really put a lot of energy into Wild Woman Apothecary as a, as a way to offer something to folks online. And uh, I am a, a clinical herbalist and I have you know done specific training in that. And I use herbs pretty regularly at a very like, kind of high level clinically in uh in my chiropractic practice and that was something that I could do online and uh so back in the spring I put together uh like an online course for people to be able to learn about some of the herbs in their some of the plants in their backyard things that they could encounter without even having to leave their property and it was a cool four week course that you know we had like little herb walks where I did uh, videos that introduced them to the plant, what it looked like. There were four lessons on how to make basic, uh, sort of the basic formulas uh, or the basic recipes for making herbal remedies, tinctures, glycerates, uh, salves, uh, teas, and decoctions. So those are like water extractions, alcohol extractions, glycerate extractions, um, salves are for topical applications. So there's all just different ways to use and to apply herbs. And so taught that all through an online kind of medium and have been working on that throughout the year to kind of have a, a hybrid kind of thing. Um, and actually this fall, I started a, an online membership group based on that where, uh, you know, once a month, it's a monthly membership where folks can, we cover a specific herb each month. We do like a workshop on a different uh, herbal topic. So I've covered how to use herbs for colds and flu, how to, um, you know, what nervines are and why to use them. And so the goal is really just to help folks who don't necessarily want to be, you know, they don't want to be a professional herbalist. They don't want to have clients that they, you know, work or treat, but they want to know how to use herbs really well for themselves um, and to take care of themselves or maybe their loved ones. And, you know, in the same way that hunting is a skill that as we learn and grow and tend, you know, it can be a skill that helps take care of us in really unsettling times. Um, you know, herbalism is the same thing. It's a skill you don't just like learn overnight. There's a certain amount of, of practice and, and time working with it that you have to put in to be, to be good and to be solid with it. And, you know, if anybody, I think about, uh, there's an episode, uh, what's the one with the zombies? The walking oh yeah. Dead. The walking dead. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, yep. you know, when society breaks down, they don't have access to, to medicines anymore. They don't have access to, to big pharma remedies and stuff like that. So the guy who ends up kind of being, the doctor type person is is somebody who knows and happens to know a lot of herbal remedies. And actually that that's the plot of one show is somebody sneaks into the camp and switches the herbal remedy and starts giving people hemlock instead of yarrow. And I'm, I'm yelling at the TV and I'm being like, you wouldn't give yarrow for that anyway. It was a bad choice of an herb, but then, you know, anyhow. Um, so 
that's that's what I'm working on um, with the apothecary is that again helping build uh, helping people who want to build their skills in being outdoors and um, and being in relationship with the outdoors and in that same way that that hunting helps kind of foster our relationship I, you know I think about in the time that I have taken up hunting, I I thought that I was a pretty like nature oriented person to begin with, but the relationship that I have with, with deer and with wildlife now is so much deeper, has so much breadth to it than it ever did before I took up hunting. You know, like I, I think about deer almost every day. I, when I see a deer, like I can't not stop and look at it for a while and like wonder what it's doing and trying to analyze, you know, what, what its motivations are, why it would be here now. You know, I just have a, a very um, different relationship with deer now as a hunter. And I think, you know, herbs, it, for me, herbs and plant can be, they can be the same thing. And I can go on a walk and, and, you know, run into a plant and be like, oh, it's almost like, it's almost like recognizing a friend that I haven't seen in a while. And it's like, oh, hey, Bones, that it's so great to see you. I haven't seen you here since last year. Like, it's nice to see you. Well, you're looking happy and flowery. And um, I, you know, I think for a lot of people, just like, you know, folks who aren't hunters or aren't, you know, kind of having that deep relationship with whatever species they hunt, they tend to look at, you know, animals almost in that like museum kind of way, you know, where they're just, where they're in a zoo, like they're, they don't have a deep connected relationship with them. And I think a lot of people do that with plants too. Like they go out and they go for a hike and they just walk through a green space. And if you were to ask them what they're seeing around them, they'll be like, well, there's some trees. And then there's these like, you know, shrubby weed yeah. things. And that's like the but, most, you know, distinguishing yeah, they can like, make. Yeah. It's like an abstraction. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've, I've heard some people refer to it as the wall of green where you just see green. There's no distinguishing. There's no picking out, you know, different trees or, or different plants, but you know, again, it's one of those things when you take the time to, to learn and focus your attention and learn the different plants and, and learn what they look like and, and learn their habitats. Now, suddenly, it's not just this wall of green. It's like, oh, hey, there's that, you know, there's that black locust. And, oh, hey, cool, you know, there's, here's this, you know, bone set or here's this elderberry shrub or, you know, what have you. And mm-hmm. I think, too, for hunters, you know, they learn a lot of times, like, the basics but that can make, I think, your hunting so much more skilled, you know, more yeah. knowledgeable when you understand uh, more the different types of, of plants, especially that, you know, what what is the species you hunt? What are they keyed into? But also, you know, what is happening with that plant that is going to um, tell you more about whether or not this is a good species to hunt or not? Like, actually, a friend of mine at the beginning of the year was like setting up their tree stands and they send me this picture of a berry on a, and a leaf. And they're like, what is this? Uh, is this going to be a good place to set up the, you know, my ladder stand? And they just saw a berry and assumed like, oh, this is going to be great 
you know, food for deer. Yep. Of course, they're going to want to come here and eat all of this. And the, uh, but they didn't know what kind of berry or shrub it was. It turned out it was an autumn olive or a Russian olive. Interesting. Which, okay. Yep. Are you familiar with those at all? You know, we don't have them up here in the Adirondacks, but, uh, oh, you don't? so no, I don't, I don't think I've never, I've never come across them. I think it's a Hudson Valley and further South, but anyway, go yeah. on. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're, they're pretty proliferative because they're actually an invasive species. Mm-hmm. Um, they came here from, uh, from Asia. Um, but they get these like, you know, little red, they look almost like a little jelly bean that has little white specks on them. And mm-hmm. unless you, they have a pretty big seed on, on them. And unless you get them like just right, they're actually very astringent. So every time I've picked them, you can eat the berries and the, and the birds love the berries. But if you eat these and you start to chew it, you'll get that like leathery, dry kind of taste on your tongue that like something that's very tannic will give you. And I've never enjoyed them. I have some like forager friends who will make like fruit leather out of them and you know, make mead with them and different stuff like that, but they've never appealed to me that much. And so I can only imagine from having tasted them myself that if I was a deer, like something that made my tongue feel kind of like dry and fuzzy (laughs) would just not be something I want to munch on. And I've, I've seen them bed down and I've seen bedding in, in stands of, of autumn olive. And it's definitely a very like shrubby, brushy kind of uh, plant. So I could see where it would make like really great bedding cover but it doesn't i've not seen them like really eat autumn olive appreciably and that's what i was like telling my friend i was like well maybe if it's thick enough maybe they'll bed but it's not like you know it's not your typical native berry bush where they're just going to be coming from wherever to to eat berries of this of this plant i was like actually you should just taste the berry and (laughs) you'll probably find it doesn't taste that great (laughs) Like, if you don't think it's that great, I bet the deer doesn't either. (laughs) Well, you know, the other thing, I mean, you bring up so many good points there. We're going to have to do a podcast sometime just on just on on herbs. herbs, Absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. But the other thing is, is that, you know, along with developing an understanding of all that, not only will it make for better understanding of hunting because you're understanding mm-hmm. habitat, you're understanding the components of habitat with food, what mm-hmm. they're going to eat, what they bet in, what they won't bet in. But also it just goes back to that comment you had made about what defines success in hunting. Mm-hmm. And I think that like once you develop and pique that curiosity about the natural world around you, it's hard to have a bad day. You, you yeah. know, I mean, there there are good days and bad days for all of us, but when you start looking at hunting in terms of, oh, what, what new species did I see? What new plants did I see? Um, what new birds did I hear? It just opens up a whole new world to mm-hmm. the present and just learning things. I think, I think it just makes for a funner day in the woods, you know? Oh, totally. So one, one more question here and then mm-hmm. we'll, you know, we'll sign off. But I'd like to hear what you have to say. Chad Love wrote a really thoughtful piece in the Quail Forever um, magazine, right, uh-huh. uh, about women hunting. And so in any forum, I, I saw the post um, in in the forum on Facebook. And, you know, with anything, you always get these dudes that are like, well, you know, I wish they would just write about, you know, hunting and stay away from 
social justice and all of this stuff. And so you have a space here to lay it out and just share what you tell people when they say stuff like that, what what it means. So I would say, first of all, equity is about human rights. So equity is not, I would say it's not a political issue. It is, we're talking about basic human rights. Um, and I, I will never see or say that human rights are a political statement. They're political to people who have a certain amount of, and I try to avoid using this word because I know it's, it's become loaded and it set people off, but, you know, to be able to say like, oh, let's just, you know, not talk about politics. Let's just talk about conservation. Let's just keep it at hunting. There's a certain privilege in being able to say that. And that's, you know, it's not, that is not an, um, that's not to condemn anybody who has that privilege. I mean, part of the thing that defines privilege is that you didn't ask for it. You know, you, you were given it to it because of, of a certain, you know, skin color or sex or orientation or, or whatever that you were, you were born into. Um, you didn't ask for it that's implied when you're talking about privilege. So nobody's saying that you're a terrible person because you're having it, because you have this. These are things that are bigger than any one individual. This is about how society works. And this is about, you know, this, this, the greater system. So it's not supposed to be, and it's not intended to be a condemnation of any one individual person. And from my own experience, you know, that's very hard to hear because there are definitely times when I have experienced being basically, you know, othered, being, you know, on the outside of things, not being accepted, not being fully uh, brought into things because, uh, because I'm, I'm a woman in hunting. And, you know, there's a lot of weird expectations that people still kind of put on that. I've had, you know, people almost sort of, fetishize me as a as a woman who hunts like I'm some sort of fantasy girl come true and it's like this has nothing I'm not here for you I'm not here to fulfill mm-hmm. your fantasies <laughs> I'm I'm here for myself to hunt this has nothing to do with you um that's probably the most difficult uh thing to put up with sometimes um you know and one of the things too, I mean, I, one of those comments that, that I saw was like, can we just stick to conservation and not talk about politics? And as I was thinking about that, I'm like, what part of conservation is not political? You know, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I say it all the time. I say it all the time. This is what we do as people who work in conservation organizations. Every conservation organization from DU to Pheasants Forever to QDMA slash NDA, BHA, whatever A you want to put on it. We're all working with state, local, federal governments to keep access to land to hunt on, to waters to hunt on, to land and and water that supports the wildlife that we want to hunt. You know, we're working with state, you know, agencies to be able to have access to hunting. Like 
everything about conservation is political because you are having to deal with governments to do it at every level. So you're in for a penny, in for a pound. Like, why are you going to say, let's keep conservation apolitical when it, you know, (laughs) a priori, it is political. And then, you know, another point that I have too, is like, why would you want to create such a, a, an unwelcoming atmosphere in conservation, you know, to have more people, to have more voices that get raised to protect these resources, to advocate for them at the political level. Like, how is that a bad thing? Like, the more people we have speaking up for the resource, the more likely we are to have, you know, a voice to get what we need to protect it. And I, I, it's still flabbergasting to me that this is like not more, you know, immediately obvious. But then, you know, I think about kind of the whole reason for being for Artemis sportswomen is to actually like really feature the voice of, of women in conservation. And the whole idea is for us to augment the conversation and to amplify the voice of all conservationists you know, at, at a political level, because we are more powerful together. We have the more of us that voice these concerns that advocate for these resources, the more we're going to protect them. So it's just, it's mind boggling to me that, you know, people would still want to like other, other people. Like if you're a conservationist, you should be somebody who's like, let's bring all the people in. If you care about the earth, if you care about the resources, if you care about conserving this, if you care about, you know, maintaining our tradition and our ability to hunt, everybody gets on that boat. We are all going to raise our voices to make sure that that happens and we always have access to it. So how and, and why anybody would be in opposition to having more people on their team, I I just will never understand. Thank you for saying it. Um, I really appreciate that. And I agree. And I also think I'll add not only having more voices and everyone's voices at the table uh, because they belong there, we're going to make better decisions with more perspective. It lends itself toward better conservation decisions when you have more perspectives too. You're going to make better decisions when you have a better cross-section of stakeholders. And mm-hmm. that includes everybody, not just yeah. not just what your mindset is of who you think it should include. So I'll leave it at that. Um, well, can so I add people, one more yeah. thing real quick? Is something that I have found personally, too, is that for folks who don't hunt, who maybe aren't even anti-hunters, but just aren't hunters themselves um, and don't know quite how they feel about it, to encounter somebody that disrupts their stereotype of maybe you know, the, the typical white male hunter makes that actually creates, I have found creates an opening for them to become more curious about why somebody, you know, in a, in a way, when they have that stereotype of what a hunt, who a hunter is, they have already assigned or decided why they think that person is motivated to, to hunt and to engage in that. And so when they encounter somebody who doesn't fit that stereotype, it, it disrupts that to in a way that now they're curious about why would this person who doesn't fit the stereotype, you know, submit themselves to, to that? Why would they be engaged in that? And I have a lot of conversations with folks and, you know, the area that I live in, I, I have a lot of folks who are very um, kind of animal rights 
you know, oriented. I was actually having a conversation the other day with somebody who's, who's a vegan and the way that I was able to talk about hunting and my perspective on it, she's like, you know, I'm a vegan, but I really appreciate and agree with the way that you engage in hunting. And if I knew more folks, you know, in hunting were like that, I would probably be like way more supportive of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, I can't say for sure because that's not my experience, but I don't know if she would have been as open to having that conversation with somebody who maybe fits the dominant stereotype. Um, I think that conversation was able to happen because of, you know, my perspective and, you know, kind of the different uh, voice that I bring to it. And so having all those different voices means we can reach out to more people who maybe don't, you know, don't find common ground with that, you know, prototypical, stereotypical white male hunter. So that's the other reason for having lots of different voices is it's just going to make other people more curious about like, why would this person get into this? What are their motivations? And then opens up a conversation that can really powerfully change minds, I think. Yeah, it's it's great perspective. And, and you know, I, I've never thought of it in those terms, but like what all, all of what you're saying makes complete sense. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Sure. So people can find you on Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Artemis Ascendant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And Wild Woman Apothecary, right? Yep. And you're, you know, doing great work out there with Artemis. Keep up mm-hmm. the great work there. That's exciting mm-hmm. to hear that you're trying to work up some things in the Northeast. You know, I sometimes feel like here in the Northeast, it excites me to hear stuff like that because I sometimes think there's so many amazing people. Sometimes we're, I don't want to say that we're a little behind other areas of the country, but like when I think I look at things like how things are organized out West, for instance, and then I look at things back home and I think there's definitely things we can pick up on. And so having a group like that here, it's exciting to me. It makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just bringing people together, building community and doing good stuff, you know, for conservation. So, Mm -hmm. all right. Sounds good. Any, uh, any closing ideas or Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) I think I've talked enough. (laughs) (laughs) I love to talk about this stuff. I would say like pretty much for the last three years, like my, my, my mind and my energy and my heart really just uh, dominates towards, towards hunting, not, you know, the the physical act of doing it, but also um, its relationship to us as humans and how it how it connects us back to our ancestry and where it came from, uh, where we came from, and and just also how it can be um, a conduit to make us better people to be a, a doorway for for ritual and reintroducing you know the sacred in our in our everyday lives. So. You know, if folks are excited about talking about that kind of stuff, they can always hit me up on Instagram and I'm a glutton for those kind of conversations. So, <laughs> Well, you're good at it too. So uh, <laughs> Krista Whiteman, thanks for being on the podcast. The last time we podcasted, we, we left off with some kind of Princess Bride reference to uh, rodents of unusual, of unusual size, size. <laughs> and fire swamps. So I had to throw that in here too. So. <laughs> That's a good way to end the podcast. And Got to keep great, the tradition you know. alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll keep that going. Let's talk again soon. And uh, sure. thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Todd. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.